0: Welcome back to the Global Migration Podcast. You've probably noticed that we took a bit of a break lately. With all of the events of the past several months, we thought this would be a good time to listen and to reflect and to reimagine what our own programs and initiatives will look like in the coming year. But we're back now with another great show that continues the conversation we had in our previous episode about how the settlement sector has been impacted by the pandemic. Today's show is hosted by Amia Wilbur, an assistant professor at the University of the Fraser Valley and a UBC migration affiliate, along with Suzanne Smythe, associate professor in adult education and adult literacy at Simon Fraser University. Back in March, when the pandemic triggered an almost universal shutdown of services across the province, Amy and Suzanne began interviewing those who worked in the settlement sector to better understand how their own work was changing and what they were doing to maintain connections in a setting where significant proportions of the population do not have access to digital resources and were thereby left out of the rapid transition to an online world. One of their key informants was Laura Mannix. Laura is the Director of Community Development at City a community resources society that provides specialized services to support newcomers living in the lower mainland of BC, but especially in Surrey, Delta, Langley, and White Rock. During their conversation, Amia, Suzanne, and Laura discuss everything from digital inequities, gender-based violence, and racialized work, to how the pandemic has also brought forth many unexpected positives in community support and outreach through the adoption of innovative practices and reinvention of existing programs. They offer glimpses of what a more inclusive, equitable, and intentional settlement sector might look like. I'm Doug Ober, the producer of the Global Migration Podcast, and thanks for tuning in.
1: Good morning, Aimea and Laura. It's really nice to see you, even on Zoom. And my name is Suzanne Smythe, and I work at Simon Fraser University as an associate professor in adult literacy and adult education. And Amy uh, Wilbur, you are from University of the Fraser Valley and I'll let you introduce yourself a little more in a minute. And you and I worked with a colleague, Emily Hunter, who works in the settlement and outreach sector. And back in March, when the lockdown first happened, the three of us got together and thought we really should tried to capture the incredible experiences of settlement and outreach workers as they were having to pivot very quickly to meet the needs of the communities with whom they work. And we were noticing at that time that, you know, the lockdown severed key points of digital connection for many people. and. It's not often known and it's not something that's very visible, but 36% of low-income Canadians do not have internet connections at home. And they rely on schools, libraries, and even fast food chains for internet connectivity. And of course, all those organizations closed down overnight and it really did have dire implications for the kind of timely access to information and resources that people were able to access. And I think it showed all of us the extent to which people's lives and well being had become tethered to digital technologies. And just as these government services and public institutions retreated, smaller, more nonprofit and community based organizations started to find really innovative ways to move into communities and to support people. And we really wanted to capture what that work looked like. So our research goal was really quite straightforward. We wanted to converse with educators working on the front lines of the pandemic in BC, in British Columbia, and in the rest of Canada. And we wanted to learn how digital inequalities were playing out, particularly among the lower income and newcomer communities that they were working with. We were also really interested just in the strategies that educators and communities were adopting to respond to the situation, kind of an emerging crisis. And we were really interested, for example, in the new pedagogies and new strategies. And we thought that these dynamic inventions, which we we talked at the time and called them pandemic pedagogies, they go largely unnoticed, but they also could be a pathway and an opening to more equitable and inclusive technology as well as service and pedagogies going forward. We ended up interviewing 27 educators across Canada in May and June, and we just really asked them basic questions and then let them talk. And some of the questions that we asked were, you know, what is the role and work that you're doing? Who are the people that you're working with? What have been their experiences during the pandemic? What issues are important or concerning to you? And what new things are you doing and what are you learning? And it was really through these questions and these 27 interviews that we began to map some very, I think, really interesting and also disruptive practices going on in settlement organizations. And one of our informants, um, Laura Mannix, we're so happy to have you here today to speak to more of these and to hear a little bit more about what your experiences have been, Laura, And Amy, maybe you want to share now a bit about what you've learned in the project and and set it up for Laura a little bit as someone who has worked in the settlement and outreach uh, sector yourself.
2: Thanks, Suzanne. So I'm very happy to be here. I am assistant professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. But before that, I worked in the settlement sector for about 20 years. So I have both the experience of working in the settlement sector and maybe understanding some of the issues that have come up. But I learned a lot from this experience in terms of the creativity and um, innovation that was coming up from many of the people that we spoke to. And today we kind of decided to focus on two areas and I'll kind of go over some of the initial findings that we found in these two areas and then open it up to Laura with some questions. Maybe first you can introduce yourself, Laura. Thanks, Amia.
3: I work for a settlement organisation that supports and empowers refugees and immigrants to create home and livelihoods, particularly in Surrey, Langley and Delta, so the Fraser Valley area and the lower mainland. And it's called Diversity Community Resources Society. And I work mostly within the settlement program context. And so that's quite an umbrella of initiatives and supports. And so a lot of the comments and information I'll be speaking about today Uh, pertains to to that experience and the communities that we work with. Thanks, Laura.
2: So Suzanne mentioned people were impacted differently during the pandemic. And one of the things that we heard a lot of was around the impact on women. So around gender-based violence, which is increasing, and we see those numbers coming out in the news. Those were things that came up in the research when we were talking to people that there was this this idea that gender-based violence was on the increase. We thought it was quite interesting when we looked at Dr. Bonnie Henry's be safe, be calm, and be kind. And the idea of safety in the home was something that came up a number of times, people not being safe and not having, you know, that safe space to be able to, to manage. This came up both in terms of the LGBTQ plus community and also in terms of women, and then Suzanne also talked about some innovative approaches that people took, and I think that that's worth talking about as well. We had a lot of people reaching out by phone, discrete phone calls, zoom drop-ins for LGBTQ+ plus people. And that was an interesting piece that came up that lots of people were able to access services that maybe couldn't have but being able to access on Zoom, whereas they may not have felt safe going out in the evening to a program. What are some of the most common issues and barriers newcomer women are facing right now?
3: Yeah, I think the research and the conversations that you and Suzanne have covered over the past couple of months have really highlighted and brought out some of the challenges that I would say that we have seen newcomer women experience. And I I also want to preface that the the term newcomer women is a complex term within itself. There are folks and women who are are part of that term that have such different lived experiences based on, you know, their their migration experience. So I just want to preface that certainly there are emerging trends. So all in all, what I what I basically want to highlight is that you know the issues that people are talking about right now that they're seeing with newcomer women have always been there. They've been now unfortunately just exacerbated. And hopefully with these conversations we can have a bit more of a thoughtful way onto how we can actually address these because when I think about some of these issues, whether it's gender-based violence, housing, isolation, when a lot of the time when folks arrive here, you know, one of the biggest barriers is connection to community and how to really foster that. And of course, once you have that connection to community, it can lead to actually securing other aspects of someone's livelihood, whether it might be language acquisition, employment, all of those things, we consider factors in the settlement process. And on top of that, I think what COVID has really highlighted, particularly for, for newcomer women, is that there are all of these issues that they are trying to mitigate, and then on top of the COVID issues. And so that's the supporting of their own children, if they have children, the supporting of their family. Quite often, women who, who have a nuclear family with them are the ones who are keeping up the emotional, mental, and physical livelihood of everyone in the family, and of course, supporting children's new learning. Um, trying to mitigate their own employment, which quite often can be precarious, and also trying to grapple and learn with new ways of accessing services. And so there's quite a compression of things that come up when we are working with newcomer women. When we talk about newcomer women or you know gender-based violence is looking at the intersectionality of someone and their experience and then responding in turn to that. I'm hoping that these conversations and what we're seeing in COVID is just another push to
2: become just normal practice. Can you speak to that a bit more? What are some practices that you're seeing in terms of responding to to the issues that you've talked about?
3: First thing is when we talk about acknowledging the intersectionality of immigrant and refugee women and then responding accordingly, that takes a lot of thought and capacity building for folks who are working with newcomer women and I think that there's been some pretty amazing trainings, webinars, conversations within the settlement sector that's been facilitated by umbrella organizations like ACASI and answer and, and organizations that have done gender-specific work as well and we've done a, a lot of work around that even before COVID. So The unique approach that that diversity has as a settlement organisation is that we actually provide clinical supports and interventions. So we have quite a host of clinical counselling and mental health supports, which not a lot of settlement organisations have at the moment. This is definitely something that diversity has been able to build upon and actually share those practices whether you want to call it a trauma-informed lens or a client-centered approach, but those rooted in best practice in mental health, we've been able to then systemically embed it in all program areas. And of course, when we talk about mental health supports and clinical interventions, I mean, that's a very Western concept. And I want to preface that what we try and do is to make it as culturally responsive as what we can, because we have a lot of communities that we work with who have never interacted with mental health the way that we talk about here in Canada may not have the direct language translation for specific mental health concepts and words. And it's just not part of the way that they live their life in the way that we talk about it. And I also say that as someone who comes from an Egyptian background and you know, seeing how you know, mental health and what I learn you know, through my work and how it plays out within community in my family is very different. And so one of the, the key practices we started was a program or a project rather called Roots of Safety. And Roots of Safety is, is a model that is adopted from its parent model. that's actually based in Australia called um, Signs of Safety. And it's a client-centered approach to safety planning that is specifically designed for self-identified immigrant and refugee women experience domestic violence and so it's actually a a resettlement sector-wide toolkit to build the capacity of people that work in the settlement sector to do culturally responsive safety planning for those who work they work with that are experiencing gender-based violence We've had other mental health approaches called healthy self, healthy families within diversity that actually is more of the preventative, it's a it's a peer support that is culturally specific and we do it within groups. And we have mental health workers that respond to the community that they're actually working with at that point and try to bring in and talk about wellness practices in a way that is accessible. And is useful for them and it's just supposed to to be a guide to embed in their everyday lives particularly as they move through something as you know significant as the, the settlement process you know there are other wonderful examples of this as well the together now project at diversity which is for sexual and gender diverse migrants definitely follows that principle as, as far as that peer support, community building and there are other wonderful initiatives like that within the settlement sector too. You know, our model Together Now was heavily based on and collaborative with I belong at Mosaic and of course what Rainbow Refugee does, but all of those use a very specific approach that acknowledges the intersectionality of the members that are part of, of, of those groups.
2: Thanks Laura. It sounds like there's all of these different approaches. How are they different right now during COVID? How are you kind of working around that and then what are some of the practices we can learn from in terms of a different way to approach uh, services in the settlement sector around capacity building, solidarity approaches? Because you've talked a lot about the services but tell us a little bit more about what it looks like right now? Yeah. So
3: with some of the initiatives that I mentioned here, you know, all most of it is done via Zoom or a phone call or WhatsApp or different platforms that are like WhatsApp but different communities prefer over that and so the innovation that we've experienced is like 20 years excelled and I would say you know for the positive it was a good kick for us because we needed to do it and I dare say we're still adapting we're still figuring out what makes sense and then what crisis support services can can still be maintained and then now we're we're getting to that time of truly innovating and figuring out what is long-term and how is this affecting the communities that we work with and is it being effective? I would say when we talk about inequity during COVID, of course, we wanna focus definitely on what we're seeing with community, but it's also been interesting to see what we're seeing within the settlement sector and the different organizations to be able to respond accordingly.
2: Why do you think that you were able to respond as an organization? What was it? Because that's something we saw as maybe smaller organizations, more community-based organizations were able to respond.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I would say diversity itself was actually looking at ways to provide more online services before COVID hit, particularly when we went through the previous federal government's call for proposal, which is one of our biggest funders for, for settlement services. And so we'd already had a lot of the equipment and know-how um, and supports. We, we were working with a, um, an IT systems consultant before COVID as well. Of course, we weren't expecting to go to that scale that we did, but we had a lot of the foundations there in place. So we went remote in a week and we're a larger organization we're not as we're not the largest certainly we're sort of you know that midway point but it was a significant undertaking done very quickly and we were just lucky that we had the resources and the policies in place to do so i mean we had to keep updating those as time went on but just for that initial to get everyone outside and safe we we're able to do that and i know and I say that being in a position of privilege because we have colleagues in you know regional areas who are smaller that just don't have that capacity they don't have the economic capacity to be able to have a consultant to have laptops available for their workers so and you know we were able to be informed by uh, those changes we we did a lot of outreach to um The communities that we work with, so surveys and, of course, just touching base verbally with the community members we support, surveys for the staff as well, just to to help inform our strategy as we transitioned and the strategy moving forward too as we look at possibly opening up to in-person supports as well.
2: For people who can't access the internet or maybe don't have a phone, are you looking at maybe having face-to-face again?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We never shut down all face-to-face interactions. There were folks that needed to have that support. You know, we were going through a significant crisis, so we still did, you know, a lot of our case management support for folks that are experiencing a bit of vulnerability that needed to have the accompaniment and language support and cultural responsive support to access like healthcare services. And recently, we're, we're starting to have people on site in a very restricted way that is based on an evaluation of what can't be supported remotely. And that's for those folks, Amia, that you mentioned that may not have access to phones or computers Unfortunately, there are just some systems that they need to access that haven't been able to transition appropriately to online, that it requires them to be on site with a worker to then, say, fill out an application or get something done.
2: Thank you. So can you talk a little bit about settlement services during COVID? What's changed? What are you learning? Surprises? um, Anything that worries you? Mm -hmm yeah i'd say so
3: much has changed there has been a lot of negatives and positives as well and maybe i might just outline some of the key things that have popped up for me is like i said the the technological advancement which amy you mentioned can have you know a level inclusiveness as well which i'll be honest when this all started to go down and i'm thinking oh my god how do we do our work when we're we're not connected, we're not together. And so this was a positive that I I didn't necessarily think about straight away. So you know we have seen programming accessible for, for people that couldn't usually access it. And I think, you know, you touched upon for LGBTQ plus folks, that's a big one because we were seeing community members all the way from like Abbotsford go to Vancouver to access safe Spaces. And so, you know, this is a really positive thing. What I do worry about with the language learners is, you know, folks who don't have the ability to access technological platforms, whether it's because they don't have the economic means to have laptops, let alone the digital capacity and literacy. That I do worry about. But what's been interesting, I heard the manager of our language program saying that they actually post out learning packages that they're able to receive at home. And then they're able to then do phone calls or you know, WhatsApp to have that one-to-one support. So again, some really innovative ways to try and bridge that. But we know that there are people being left behind. And so it's just key to know that once COVID-19, once it's there's a vaccine and we have more safety measures, that I think we're, we're just gonna have a blended approach to how we provide these settlement services moving forward. I think another piece that I worry about, particularly as um, someone who heads up a team, is burnout. We have teams that are trying to now relearn their jobs in the sense of technology, the systems change that's taking place at such rapid speed, and then also doing it at home during a crisis when they too are mostly racialized migrants themselves and have families that they need to look after and may have had very similar experiences to the communities that they work with and what that brings up for them. So right from the beginning, we said straight away that we know that there's no expectation in which staff can continue to do the job that they they have done previously. There's just no way that we can do that. There's so much disruption happening at the moment, so much complexity. And so we wanted to make it clear that there was not an expectation of that. And then we needed to work with
2: them to figure out how the best way to support them. Thanks. Maybe you can speak to some of the sort of bigger picture things in terms of the settlement sector and where you see maybe some changes that could be made or might be made as a as a result of all of this
3: yeah i would say what i really appreciated as COVID hit for us and all the settlement organizations started to go remotely there was a lot of information exchanging which was really positive. I think it was very helpful in the sense of organizations that were larger, had more capacity, more resources, that were able to problem solve sooner and then give a roadmap to other organizations. I think because of, again, the accessibility of technology, we are doing a lot more together. AMSA was excellent in stepping up as the umbrella organization of the settlement sector and providing resources for and updates, whether it was like systems updates or resources for organizations from a, a capacity and, and business development lens. There were organizations that were doing that even on their own terms, which was really encouraging. What I, I do worry about is because we particularly for the past three months, we have been going through the sort of crisis mode of just trying to get our own operations together, making sure that community is being supported at this time and there's been so much change. You know, COVID has just taken a lot of capacity away. I think that that will recenter itself and I think it's been replaced in in other ways. And I say it from my own preference, it's how I work, I'm so relational. I would take the time to, to go and meet someone to get to know them, to get context, to move your partnership forward or, you know, an initiative forward. And so it's a little bit harder to do, I would say, in, in this context, not impossible, we'll work it out. But I think where that has also shown us is that some efficiencies have been definitely created throughout this context. And it's wonderful and I'm glad that we've really been able to identify as um, efficiencies, you know, in our practices. But I just hope that you know efficiencies won't replace that deeper work. And I know that you know, in a climate in which you know we do have contract deliverables and indicators that are really efficiencies-based, it's quite appealing to, to keep some of these practices. So it's a fine balance of the deep work. I think what's also interesting is how to look at systems piece, and it is a little bit outside of what we talked about with newcomer women and digital inequity, but I think the eligibility of our services hopefully might change as well because our migration system has shifted significantly and shifted significantly around what status of migrant is allowed in the country right now. And that's very different to the ratio of the eligibility of status of migrants that get to access the funded services. And so we are hoping that there might be a bit more of a policy change around the eligibility of services and who gets to access them, because there has been such a significant shift. You know, the settlement sector here has been heavily influenced by, you know, a colonized, it's a colonized framework. And the people who have been put in positions of power, locally and pan-Canadian, have exacerbated that. And so we are really trying to make some changes just around approaches, but representation and just even use of language. It is so hard for me to unlearn language that I've used when I started in this sector as a frontline worker and then a manager. And so, you know, I hate using the word client and, but people look at me now and say, who are you talking about when you talk about a community member? So there's just a lot that needs to be unlearned right now. And, and I think during this time, particularly around some awakening around racial justice as well, it's really pushing these conversations to the forefront.
2: Thanks, Laura. Yeah. I'm going to pass it over to Suzanne now. Laura,
1: it was so, it's so fascinating to listen to your experiences and your reflections on your experiences and taking those in the context of the interviews we've been doing and some of your observations about the policy landscape as well. Yes, this has been an incredibly disruptive crisis, but what I'm hearing from you is that there has also been an opening to a lot of making visible a lot of pre-existing issues that now, you know, are impossible to brush aside, but also opening up some pathways to doing things differently. And I guess from a research point of view, many of us who work in adult education, adult literacy, uh, migrant studies and adult English language education, as well as plurilingualism and multilingual education have a lot to learn from what you and your colleagues um, have been doing in the last few months. One of the things that really strikes me is that the need to differentiate and be a lot more subtle and complex in how we research and write about so-called newcomers And I think you made a really important point that there is no one group of newcomers and those of us who write in this field really need to either prefix or put us asterisks or just get rid of the word newcomers and talk specifically about the differently positioned people who are coming to Canada, and then how those different experiences are shaping access to services, learning journeys, the ways in which people are expected, as you say, uh, to find work and to so-called settle. You know, for example, and what really strikes me, what you're saying is that racialized groups are going to have a very different settlement experience in Canada than those who might read as, as white. Those who come with already established social networks and communities in the country will have a a different experience, not to say easy, but different than those who are coming from refugee backgrounds without organizations and without social networks and language networks as well. And then also, of course, LGBTQ to spirited communities, as well as racialized women, really need to be at the forefront or at the center of the ways in which so-called services are designed rather than a one-size-fits-all approach, which I think you have been sharing with us certainly didn't work during COVID, wasn't working before, and then absolutely had to be disrupted during COVID. Just so that you could reach out to people and make sure that they were safe and brought into the fold of the community once again, having their connections disrupted through the sudden closure of schools and digital access and so on. So for me, that's something that the field really has to uh, take seriously. And then the ways in which services are offered, you describe a more bureaucratic, clientism, service-oriented hierarchy around who's eligible for services, how often they must come, if they're late. And all that completely ignores everyday life experiences. And so once again, making it very hard for people to access the services they need because they don't fit into this one-size-fits-all box. And what you've been showing us, I think, is the need for a much more intentional, feminist, and relational approach to services. Mm -hmm. And maybe even taking services off the table and calling them something else, because it feels to me that as you're speaking, you're creating a world where we might think of solidarity over clientism, and where we might think of capacities and community resources at the center of work rather than as some kind of nice-to-have extra, that is often ignored. And thirdly, I think also for those of us doing research, we really do need to think about the ways in which our own research apparatus, as well as settlement service and adult education apparatus, flow from racialized and gender hierarchies within our own institutions. And the fact that it is racialized women on the front lines doing this work of making others safe while they're trying to keep themselves and their own families safe feels to me kind of an unacceptable burden to be placing on the same people all the time. Whereas people higher up in those organizations, including research institutions, tend to be a little bit more hands-off and not taking on that emotional labor that once again is not as valued as it you know, as it should be. So I think for me, those are three of the many really important um,
3: ideas and thoughts you've left us with today. Thank you, Suzanne. Everything that you said deeply resonates and I, I appreciate that opportunity to have these conversations because it has been rare, actually. Thank you. And it's only from your um,
1: really articulate sharing of your experiences that we're able to learn um, and think about things in, a, I think, a better way. And thank you for spending so much time with us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very
3: much.
0: That's all for today. That was Amy Wilbur, Suzanne Smythe, and Laura Mannix discussing the ways the settlement sector has responded to the pandemic in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia. To learn more about today's speakers, visit our website at migration.ubc.ca slash podcast. This will be the last episode of our first season doing the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen these past few months. I've learned a lot from this process and we've been thrilled with the feedback and interest from all of our listeners. If you have a topic that you would like us to address in the future, or you yourself would like to be on the show, send me, Douglas Ober, an email at admin.migration.ubc.ca. We'll be back later with another season But in the meantime, we have lots of great events scheduled for the upcoming year with some 20 public lectures, workshops and forums that include guests and speakers from across the globe. As always, everyone is welcome and we hope to see you there, whether it's online or in person. But until then, be kind and be well.